0: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're all very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to tonight's talk is Philosophy and Love, and the subtitle is How to Love Everyone. So this should be challenging. Now, there is a description of the creation as follows. and What it says is, the manifestation of the creation is an act of love. Every form is formed in love, every creature represents that love, everywhere is pervaded by that love, and every action is motivated by love. This means that in truth there is only one emotion, i.e. love, but it manifests differently to produce the whole range of emotions that we are familiar with from hatred, anger, envy, to attraction, compassion, and unconditional love. To give a a simile, it's like a light passing through a prism, and the pure light is broken up into a variety of colors. But in fact, there's only one source, i.e. pure light. And there's only one source to all the emotions that we enjoy or suffer, and that is love. Now, what impels one person to do bad and another person to do good is exactly the same. Everybody is impelled by love, whether their actions are good or bad. When love is unlimited, then goodness is the fruit for all. And when the love is limited, then badness is the fruit. And what limits love circles. Hitler's love of Germany was within his circle. Outside this circle of Germany was hatred for all other nations. When the love is limited by a circle, what actually follows is a desire to possess, a need to control, and frustration within the circle. Outside the circle you get the range from indifference to suspicion and ultimately hatred. And you see this within our own lives that we have these circles and our responses to events are determined by these circles. So you could compare your response to the hunger of your own child as compared to the hunger of a child in Africa. It's not the same response unless your circle includes African children. And these circles that we draw and limit our love, they're not constant. In fact, they're constantly expanding and contracting. So sometimes I feel for the world, and sometimes I only care for myself. There are times when I would just make a cup of coffee for myself and drink it privately, rather than make coffee for others. Thus, there's only one emotion, and that's love. And if this love is frustrated, then you get anger or hatred. So if I love to arrive at the airport on time or I love to get to the cinema at the beginning of a film and there's a lot of traffic on the road, then I hate that traffic. So when love is frustrated, it produces anger, or hatred. Now it's said by the wise that God wished to enjoy his own bliss in as many forms as possible. So he made himself many. The one became many. And so that none would remain apart from him, but that all would wish to return to him, he gave them love. Well, what is love? One definition is that it is the intense longing for unity. The desire for two to become one. And as was said before, the one became many out of love. And it allows the many to become one again out of the self-same love. Now, to take from the Christian tradition, we have the great commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself. This is not a suggestion. It's not a request. And it's not just a commandment. It's actually a law. It operates whether you believe in it or not. It's just like the law of gravity. Whether you believe in the law of gravity or not, it still operates. And you do love your neighbor as yourself, whether you know it or not. However, the question is, what do you see as yourself? And however you see yourself, that's how you love your neighbors. So if you see yourself as fundamentally a physical body, if you think things like I'm young or I'm old or I'm good-looking or I'm ugly or I'm tall or I'm small, statements like that. If you see yourself as body then you will love the bodies of others. You'll be attracted to the good-looking, etc. And this love, this type of love, will yield its fruit and only its fruit. And its fruit is pleasure and pain. So if you love the body then that's what you get, a life of pleasure and pain. Now we think that pleasure is not so bad We think, in fact, I could do with a bit more of it. And in fact, I'd like lots more pleasure. But it is a fact that there's only so much pleasure you can put up with. So, for example, if I happen to be sitting down and I'm watching television and uh, my wife comes into the room and she sits beside me and she strokes my hand, the first stroke yields intense pleasure. If she continues to stroke my hand, After a couple of minutes, I want to bite her fingers off. I say, can you not just leave me in peace? I'm trying to watch a match. Because the pleasure of that stroking actually turns to pain and ultimately irritation. So believe it or not, there's only so much pleasure you can put up with. If you see yourself as a mental being, then you love people for their mind. If you happen to be intelligent, then you will love intelligent people. Not brilliant or not stupid people. You will not like stupid people because they don't understand what you're saying. And you won't like brilliant people because you don't understand what they're saying. But you will enjoy and love the company of those who are roughly as intelligent as you are. And this type of love yields its fruit and the fruit of this type of love is a world full of likes and dislikes what i want and what i don't want happiness with a small h and misery with a capital m and because the mind is not steady the love in this world is not steady also what i want our love on monday i do not want our love on tuesday And when I get what I want, I tend to be disappointed because the mind has changed its mind in the meantime. So to be fulfilled, we have to love in a special way or a particular way. And that is you need to love as your true self, which is not body or mind, but spirit. And it yields its fruit. And the fruit of this love, the love of spirit, is unconditional, constant bliss. And for there to be true love, you need to know your true self so you can love others as your true self. And we look at that later. Now, true love has certain characteristics. And if these characteristics are not present in your love, then it's not true love. And if you happen to be here with a spouse or a partner, it's not advisable to look at them while I read this out. Because you may see how they're answering what I'm about to say. So my advice is to look straight ahead. (laughs) So Now, there are only three characteristics. The first characteristic of true love is that love does not bargain. It's not for what I get in return. It's not I play squash on Tuesdays and you attend philosophy on Wednesdays. It's not I love you if you will love me. That's just swappies. That's just bargaining. Where there's true love, you love so that the other is happy not so that you are happy. You actually love them because they're lovable, because you can't help loving them. Love is thus for its own sake. Love is its own reward. The person who loves is happy, not necessarily the person who is loved. Often you hear people saying, I just wish somebody would love me, then I would be happy. Well, somebody loving you won't make you happy, or won't necessarily make you happy. And there's a simple proof of this. If I say to the ladies in this room, I met a man today called Fred, and he loves every one of you. Do you feel any happier? Do you feel sort of overcome with emotion? (laughs) The fact that Fred loves you leaves you completely indifferent. And if I say to all the men in the room, Mary loves you, it has exactly the same effect. Being loved does not make you happy, but loving does make you happy. Happiness lies in the giving of love, and there is no price for love, so you never charge for it, you never demand that another loves you in return, because that's the price. So that's the first characteristic. You can mark yourselves on that one. The second characteristic of true love, where there is true love, there is no fear. The reason for this is that love conquers fear. And the example that's often given is if you take, and we make it a young mother, and she's walking down the street on her own, and this great big dog bounds out of a garden and uh, attempts to attack her, well, then she runs away in fear. But if the same young mother is walking down the same road the next day with her young child, and the dog leaps out to attack the child, the mother doesn't run away, but stands between the dog and the child. Because love conquers fear. Now, if there's no fear, then in that relationship there will be no restraint. There will be no concern that if I give all, I might lose all. There'll be no need to protect my heart by limiting my love, by keeping my love under control. In fact, by giving fully, I get fully. There's also no fear that the love might die. I I love you today, but I'm worried about whether I love you in 20 years' time or not. So there's no fear that the love might die. And when there is no fear, then you get true friendship. What is a friend? What is a true friend? Well, a true friend is someone you can tell anything to and that you do tell everything to. Therefore, between friends, there is no private world, no private thoughts, no private hopes, no private fears, no private past a private present or future. A friend is someone who accepts you totally without judgment and that is why you can tell them everything. A friend is your equal who knows your needs without being told who cares for you and who is calm peaceful and gentle in your presence because they are themselves when they're with you. So with true love, there is no fear, and you get real friendship. And the third characteristic is that where there is true love, there is no rival. The beloved, the one you love, embodies the very best, and that is why he or she has no rival. The beloved represents the highest ideal of the lover and it is for this reason that it fully satisfies because it represents the very best and because it represents the very best you can't be distracted from it. So let's say I had a love of cars and I loved the Rolls Royce. I thought it was the best car in the world and you offer me a Jaguar as a swap for the Rolls-Royce, or a Ferrari, or whatever it is, Cadillac, I cannot be distracted from the Rolls-Royce, because for me it represents the very best. If you find that you are capable of being distracted, then it is not true love. It's also not true love, when one says, I'm torn between two. and well, we make it a lady, she announces to you that she loves Fred and she also loves you. I love you both equally. Or even worse, I want both of you. Well, this is not true love. It's greed or excitement. But it's not true love. If you go out with someone for a meal... And they're given the menu and they look at the menu and they say, I would like to eat everything on the menu. You're not dining with a lover of food, you're dining with a pig. (laughs) So don't have a relationship with a pig. Don't marry the pig. There is no sharing in love because the beloved is the ideal. So there are the three characteristics of true love. As we said at the beginning, that love is the only emotion in the creation. And if this is true, why is it so difficult to find? Why are our lives not pervaded by it? It is everywhere, and yet some travel the whole world in search of it. And the reason for this not finding true love in our lives is the false ideas about love that we hold. And there are a number of these, and I'd just like to go down through them. They're not in any particular order, but you may recognize some of them. The first false idea about love is that love has a limit. It's not possible to love everybody one shouldn't expect to love everybody because it's not possible, particularly the next door neighbor with a rottweiler. That would be unreasonable to expect that one could love him and the dog, in fact. But the truth of the matter is you can love all because the heart of man has no limit. It was designed to love the whole creation The advice or guidance or law or instruction of Jesus is not impractical. It was for ordinary men and women to love all. And there's a very simple proof of this, and it's probably within the majority of our experience. Say, again, we have a young mother, and she has one child. So she gives all her love to that child. And then she becomes pregnant again, and she has another child she doesn't have to withdraw half our love from the first child in order to give it to the second child. She doesn't have to love the first child any less because there's now a second child. What actually happens totally naturally is that love expands so that the two children are loved totally. And if she was either fortunate or cursed to have quadruplets the next time, so she now has six children, there will be no strain on the love. The love will naturally expand so that six children are loved fully. If it can be for one, for two and for six, it can be for a hundred thousand, it can be for a million, it can be for six billion, it can be for the whole creation. There is no limit on the capacity to love. So that's the first false idea about love. And the second false idea about love is that love has a beginning. And there's a tragic aspect to this belief. Because we believe that love has a beginning, we also believe it has an end. People say things like, I fell in love last winter, and I fell out of love last spring. And this is simply not true. There is no beginning to love And there's no end to it either. A lady came to me a number of years ago, and she was about to get married. And doubts arose in her mind about marrying this man. And she had this belief that love had a beginning, and therefore she was concerned about it having an end. I Told her that this wasn't true, that love had no beginning and no end, and she didn't believe it. So I asked her, when did she start to love this man? If it had a beginning, it must have had a start sometime, sometime in history. So I said, when did you start to love this man? And she couldn't answer the question. It was July when we were meeting. I said, well, well, did you love him at Easter? She said, oh, yes, I definitely loved him at Easter. And I said, well, what about Christmas? Did you also love him at Christmas? Yes, I remember now. It's a great present. Loved him dearly. (laughs) I remember buying the present for him as well. There was definitely love in my heart for this man at Christmas. And I said, well, what about August, the previous August? She said, no, I, I don't think I loved him the previous August. So I said, okay, sometime between August and December the 25th, you fell in love, according to your theory. And we eventually got it down to October. October was the momentous, occasion okay, when <laughs> love arose. So I said, okay, what day? What day in October? Now, at this stage, she failed to answer the question, so I'm just going to fill in these dates. So we say it's October the 16th. So I suggested that date to her. Let's make it October the 16th. You fell in love with this man. All right, what time? What time on that day? I said, let's make it six o'clock in the evening. On October the 16th, you fell in love with this man. And I said, are you saying to me that at 5.59 on October the 16th you didn't love this man? That one minute previously you didn't love this man? And what she admitted was that at 6 o'clock on October the 16th she realised that she loved the man. She woke up to the love that was there. Not that it started... But she realized that she did actually love him. And this is what happens. You wake up to the existence of love or you fall asleep to it. You don't start loving and you don't stop loving. You can deny that there is love. You can forego it. You can disconnect from it. But it's still there. It never ends and it never increases and it never decreases. But it can appear to increase or decrease. But it's like if you move towards a light, it appears to get brighter. And if you move away from the light, it appears to get duller. But the light itself is not changing at all. Love is immutable, unchanging, and eternal. So that's the second idea. The third false idea about love is that you need two to love. People sometimes say this, there's nobody in my life, so there's no love in my life. But you don't need two to love. To try to love others without loving yourself first is impossible. The capacity to love others is determined by your capacity to love yourself. If you do truly love yourself, then you will love everybody. And this is why you often find with young children that they have a natural love for everybody. And the reason why is because they love themselves. They even love themselves at a physical level. You often see children examining themselves in the mirror And they like the look. You can tell by their faces that they like the look of themselves in the mirror as they twiddle their hair and make faces and everything like that. Now, when you look in the mirror, do you like what you see? In fact, do you love what you see? I'll admit I don't if you admit you don't. (laughs) You tend to look in the mirror and love doesn't arise. You think it's just so unfair. <laughs> in fact, if people see you looking in the mirror, you don't even like that. You pretend you're looking for a speck in the mirror or something like that. But children don't mind looking at themselves and no criticism arises. The fact of the matter is you don't need two to love. You only need one to love. And that's yourself. And again, a simple example, will show this. Again, we take this mother and she has three children and she loves them fully. Can you say that she has more love in her life than a mother who has two children? No. There isn't one third less love in the life of a mother with two children as opposed to a mother with three children. And if there's no less love in the life of a woman who has two children as opposed to three then there'll be no less love if she has one as compared to two and there'll be no less love in our life if she has none as compared to one so you don't have to wait for another in order for there to be completeness of love in your life the fourth false idea about love is that for it to be love, for me to classify it as love, it must be special. It must be some sort of special emotion, which is particular. The belief is, if it is a special love, it will be a better love. So, let's say I go home to my wife and I tell her I love her. And on the basis that she loves me, I think this will please her greatly. So she will glow inwardly and slightly, outwardly, as I declare my love for her. And then, if I say to her, "But I love all other women equally," I say that from a distance because that's a very—that's uh, a dangerous statement. Now I've told her I love her, but I love all other women equally. Now we have a maniac on our hands. Why? Because she wants to be loved specially. You might remember, either with your own children or in your own childhood, going up to your father and mother and you say, do you love me, then, make it daddy, do you love me daddy? And daddy would say yes. And you got a bit older and you say, do you love me a bit more than you love my brother and sister? You wanted it to be a special love. Well, remember, whatever is special is limited. A specialist is of very little use for the vast majority of things. And special love is limited love. True love is not special, but universal. In fact, the love of wife, the love of daughter, the love of mother, the love of woman or man, take all the male counterparts, are not different at all. So if I say I love my wife and I love my daughter and I love my mother, it's exactly the same love I'm talking about. There aren't different loves. There's not a particular type of love for wife and a particular type of love for mother. There is no special love, but love manifests differently differently depending on the relationship. It's the same love, but how it expresses itself will be determined by the relationship. So for example, I love my wife, and I'm very happy to spend seven days and seven nights a week with her. I also love my mother, but there isn't the same desire for companionship with my mother seven days and seven nights, and I would move out within a fortnight. Despite the fact that I do love her, there isn't the same desire to express it in companionship. So how one reveals love, how you demonstrate it to yourself and to others, is unique. So in truth, I do love all women equally, but express it differently depending on my relationship with them. If you make your love special with one woman, then you will deny yourself the love of all other women, and vice versa if you're a man. And that's a tragedy, to confine your love to one person or one family. The next false idea about love is a false idea of a complete love i.e., that we must love every aspect of the being. That we must love the body, we must love the mind, the heart, and the spirit. And this is just not true. For those of us who have children, we will recognize that there are many aspects of our children which are simply not lovable. The same could be true about our good selves in this room, but I won't be insulting. We'll talk about some children who are not in the room. So, we all have children who are not physically beautiful. We may have children who have limited intelligence. We may have children who are mean-hearted. Characteristics of their being are not particularly nice, but it doesn't stop you loving them. You don't have to be good-looking to be loved. You don't have to be intelligent to be loved. And you don't even have to be nice. Be loved. Because the true love of a parent to a child is not of the body, mind and heart, but of the essence. You love their essence. And loving their essence it's not relevant what body, mind and heart they have. It is a fact that you actually only ever love the essence. Some people will say, well, I do love bodies so I love a good-looking body. But that's not true. If we take the consciousness and life out of that body, we make it a dead body. Would you like to go on a date with that? Drag it into the restaurant? (laughs) At least it won't be ordering everything on the menu, so that's one advantage. In fact, you could find yourself attracted to a particular body for 30 years or 40 years, but take the consciousness out of it and you want to bury it within three days. And it holds no attractions for you. A body without consciousness is completely unattractive. And a mind without consciousness is totally dark and has no attractions. And a heart without consciousness is completely mean and totally unattractive. In fact, there's only one thing in existence Which is attractive. And which is lovable. And that is consciousness. We actually love it. Because it is the same consciousness in yourself. When you actually are loving another. You are loving the consciousness in them. You are actually loving yourself. Because it's the same consciousness that's in yourself. We think the body is beautiful. We may think the mind is beautiful or the heart is beautiful. But in fact it is consciousness alone that is beautiful which is lovable and which is reflecting this beauty and love everywhere through all the forms of creation. It's like the sun reflecting in various buckets of water. So each bucket has a sun reflecting in that bucket. But there is no sun in the bucket of water. It is the one sun reflecting everywhere. The next idea, false idea about love, is that like becomes love. So people sometimes think, if I hang around long enough in this relationship, it'll eventually turn into love. So sometimes you ask people about that, they tell you that they've met a new person and we make it a man meeting a woman, and you meet him on the Monday and you say, how did it go? And he says, fine, I think I like her. And then you meet him a couple of weeks later and he says, how are you getting on now? He says, it's improving a lot, I like her a lot now. And then a couple of months later and he says, I really, really do like her. And all the time he thinks that this like, one day is going to turn into love like a Caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Well, it never will. Like never turns into love. It can only do two things, or sorry, three things. It can stay as like, it can become dislike, or it can turn into an obsession. But it will never convert into love. Like is based on an idea in the mind. And ideas in the mind cannot and do not transform into love in fact all ideas are impediments to true love if you wish to truly love someone you should drop your liking of them you should also drop your disliking of them and if you do drop your liking of them and you drop your disliking of them you will love them The next false idea about love is that opposites attract. And somebody has a lot to answer for coming up with this concept. That opposites attract. And this is why you find that thieves and policemen hang around together. (laughs) And saints and sinners and all these things. And yet people believe this. And if you believe it, You try to find someone completely opposite to you and then try and make yourself attracted to them. Well, there is no communication between someone who only speaks French and someone who only speaks Italian. There is no communication between a saint and a sinner and a thief and a policeman. And where there is no communication, there is no unity where there's no unity, there's no love. There's no unity between opposites. So, you look for yourself in another, not your opposite. And the last false idea about love is that love weakens you. So if I believe I have a vulnerable nature, I'm a sort of a sensitive sort of guy, then I'm easily hurt. And because I'm easily hurt, I have to protect my heart. If I give all, I might lose all. So I'm not willing to love someone fully. But if you remember what you were like as a child, I'm sure this is either in your life You did it, or your children have done it to you. Sometimes you can come home in the evening and a child will come running up to you, wrap its arms around you, and say, I love you, scrillions. It's not thinking to itself, I better control this. I could get exploited by declaring unconditional love to my mother and father. When a child declares its love unconditionally, it's not seeking to protect It's seeking to declare. And the reason it declares it is because it has a strong heart. It has no fear. And only the strong or the brave can love. And the strong cannot be exploited. So love only strengthens you. It never weakens you. If you contain your love to protect your heart, you will have a weak heart and a weak heart will be ever exploited. Love is food for the heart so you feed your heart by having unconditional love and a well-fed heart will be a strong heart. Now there are some impediments to true love which again tend to remove true love from our lives. And the first of these is a shopping list. Everybody has a shopping list when it comes to love. And this is our collection of ideas about who we would be willing to love. And people have to measure up to this predetermined list, or else we refuse to love them. So they might have to be charming, witty, good-looking intelligent, insanely rich, all of these things. And if they match up to that, well, we love them. Or else they might have to be nice, capable of listening, all of that sort of stuff. And then we say, I'm willing to love them. Every one of us has a list. And we don't like to discuss this list with anybody. Because it's full of greed, prejudice, bias, and limitation. And whenever anybody is introduced to us, up comes the shopping list, about six inches to the left of their head. So the person is introduced, and up comes the shopping list. And as they start to talk to you, you begin to tick off the little list. Yes, yes, no, 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 goodbye, and on to the next person in the party and see if we can get ten little ticks in a row. Everybody is doing it to you every time you're introduced to them. They're ticking you off as to whether you're lovable or not. Most of us fail most of the time. In fact, the vast majority of humanity is rejected with this shopping list. You know, again, when you were a child, you didn't have this shopping list. In fact, you didn't have a shopping list with regard to life at all. So you didn't prefer Saturdays to Mondays. And you didn't prefer the sun to the rain, or the rich to the poor, or the white to the black, or any of these things. because you didn't do this, you're free to love at all. But what tends to happen, besides inherent traits in your being, is that people keep asking you questions, like, what's your favourite colour? And you feel inadequate because you don't have a favourite colour. So you develop a favourite colour. Royal blue. It's always very impressive if you say royal blue as compared to your average blue. So, you develop blue as your colour. And you might become a weekend person. Which means you're miserable for five days every week. You might even become a sunny weekend person. Which means twice a year you're reasonably happy. <laughs> By the time you're 16 you have a fully developed list. You no longer like young people because they talk about childish things. You don't like old people because they're always going on about the past. You don't like country people because they're far too slow. You don't like city people because they're far too quick. You don't like loud people because they never give you a chance to talk. And you don't like quiet people because you've nothing to say whenever you're with them. And with this list you're now down to about three people in the whole world that you could possibly love. And the tragedy is they have their own list and they don't love you. (laughs) There's six billion people currently in the universe and we can't find one to love. It's absolutely insane. And the thing to do is to throw this list away. It's just a series of biases and prejudices which stops you loving the person in front of you. There's a man in the school, and by ordinary physical judgment, you would not call him the best-looking man in the world. And he's very, very happily married. And this is how he got married. His wife was in a choir and she was making herself up before the choir went out on the stage. So she was backstage in one of these dressing rooms. And suddenly a very strong thought arose in her mind that the first man her eyes gazed at this evening will be the man she would marry. So when she walked out on stage, the first man her eyes gazed at, she would marry that man. So anyway, with a certain degree of trepidation, she walked out onto the stage, and her eyes fell on this man. And she turned to heaven and she said, Oh God, no! Please, no! (laughs) Well, they're very happily married, they have a couple of children, and they're absolutely a delightful couple. So there was one case of true love beating off the shopping list. The second impediment to true love are desires. You love the beloved, not the possession of the beloved. If it is possession that you love, then the possession comes first and not the beloved. So where it is possession that you want because of your desires, then you prefer your beloved to be by your side and miserable rather than happy and a couple of thousand miles away. One lady was asked by her son, he was offered a number of jobs, and he went to her as a son would to his mother and asked her for her advice about which job he should take, expecting that love would motivate her response. However, possession motivated her response. The only thing she knows about the jobs were how far they were away from home. One of them involved him staying at home. The other two involved him moving away. So without blinking an eye, looking him straight in the eye, she said, I think you should take the one which involves remaining at home. Fortunately for her, unfortunately for him, the next day guilt arose about this biased selection, and she withdrew her recommendation but that's what possession does to you. You would prefer the person to be miserable and by your side than happy and away from you. With desire comes demands and conditions. And what you'll find is the beloved is treated worst of all. You may notice sometimes that strangers are forgiven everything while the beloved is not forgiven anything. So, for example, if a husband says he will meet his wife at 3 o'clock, and as an awful lot of husbands do, turns up late and we make it 15 minutes, you know, he's lacerated verbally about his lateness. He's told that this is living proof that he has no affection for her and doesn't value her presence or anything like this at all. And after all these years that she's cared for him, so that's fine. That's how a husband is treated. However, if it's a minor acquaintance, and they say they meet you at 3 o'clock and they turn up at 3.15, you say, no problem, I enjoy just sitting here watching the people go by. In fact, I enjoy waiting. A family is often a complex web of demands, of serious, serious, tight demands, without an ounce of love in them. So we tend to be very broad-minded with regard to other children and their behavior, but our own children. It's completely different. I don't know if you saw the film Billy Elliot. The son, from a very working-class background, wants to and does become a ballet dancer. The father is a minor. This is incomprehensible to him <laughs> that a son of his could want to become a ballet dancer. And it's a superb story as the father struggles with his true love and yet this demand that his son take on a particular career. I mean I've been to ballet and I think ballet is wonderful, but over my dead body will my son become a ballet dancer. But I think if other people take it up, it's a very fine occupation. A lot of discipline, all those wonderful things, brings joy to many people, but not for the mull halls of this world. <laughs> Why do we often love the company of strangers? complete strangers. And the reason why is they make no demands of us. We don't have to perform in any way. So sometimes we meet somebody on a train and they just start to talk to us. And for hours we talk to them and we tell them everything about ourselves, things we've never told anybody. We're just simply ourselves with nothing to protect Nothing to possess. So desires are the second great impediment to true love. The third impediment to true love is filling our heart with possessions. The heart is always full. Always full. If it's 20% full of love, then it will be 80% full of possessions. If it's 60% full of love, it will be 40% full of possessions. But possessions possess you. They do not set you free. And no human being enjoys being bound. If you possess a car, and in fact it ultimately possesses you, then when it's going well, you're happy. And when it breaks down, you're miserable. In fact, you can become so identified with your car that when it breaks down you go into the office you say, I broke down this morning. You don't even differentiate between the car and yourself. If it is possession and not love, then you will enjoy its company and you will grieve its absence. And this is controversial but absolutely true that love does not cause grief. Only possession does. When there is possession, you will enjoy its company and you will grieve its absence. When there is love, you will not grieve the absence. Possessions are a burden to the heart. And when you have no possessions, you have nothing to worry about. This is why nobody worries in deep sleep. Because you've surrendered all your possessions. Love lightens the heart and it feeds the heart. And possessions darken the heart and poison the heart. And make it difficult for it to express its love. The next impediment to true love are preferences. Preferences actually destroy love. We don't have a marker by the other, So, this is a very simple diagram. And we make this plus 10 at the top of the diagram. And we make it minus 9 at the bottom. And the plus 10 represents absolute love and the minus 9 represents hatred to the maximum degree possible for us it's a whole other discussion as to why we can't have minus 10 but we just leave that for the time being and again we take the life of a child and we make it very very simple there are only two days in the week and they are Monday and Saturday And because the child loves them both and loves them equally, they're both at the level of 10 in the child's life. Now, so we have this child and it loves Monday and it loves Saturday. But now the child is going to develop a preference for Saturday. So the question is, how does a child develop a preference for Saturday when it loves both Monday and Saturday at the absolute maximum? it cannot develop a preference for Saturday by increasing its love for Saturday because 10 is the maximum. How it does it is by withdrawing its love for Monday. And so we make Monday like this. So by withdrawing its love from Monday the child now has a preference for Saturday. But having a preference for Saturday It pays a colossal price because it now loses its absolute love for Saturday but only prefers it to Monday. And this is how we all start off and this is how we end up. And what we try and do is the ones that we love more we try to prolong and the ones that we prefer less we try to shorten. And if I offered you a life with no preferences, let's say I said I could wave a magic wand right now and you would have no more preferences. It would be the end of royal blue and all that sort of stuff. Most people wouldn't take it. Because our image of a life without preferences is a bland sort of life. It's a life like this. Somewhere in the middle between the highs and the lows. And in fact, we would put up with the highs and lows rather than have this sort of zombie-like existence. But if you give up your preferences, you don't have a life here at all, in the middle between the highs and the lows. This is the life you have. You love everything absolutely. Every preference is a burden to the heart and weighs the heart down. And when you let go your preferences, you love everything again unconditionally. So just as you gathered these preferences from your childhood upwards, you should now let them go. The last impediment to true love is that love gets misdirected. It gets directed to the gross and subtle worlds. And if it is the gross world, i.e. the body, then as said before, pain and pleasure is the fruit thereof. And as was said before, there's only so much pleasure you can take before it turns painful. If you say to me, I find strawberries pleasurable, I look forward to strawberries, so then I decide to feed you them for breakfast, for your mid-morning break, for lunch, for your afternoon break, for your evening meal, and then for a late-night finish-off meal. (laughs) you will find strawberries extremely painful. If you pursue pleasure and pain, you'll only end up with pain in the end. If you direct your love to the subtle world, then as was said before, the fruit is like and dislike and attraction and repulsion. And these do not stay the same. So whatever your likes were as a five-year-old, you don't like them anymore when you're ten years of age. Now you're into big toys. And then when you get to 15, you no longer play with the toys of a 10-year-old. Now it's CDs and all sorts of things. And when you're 20, it's girlfriends or boyfriends. When it's 25, it's careers. And so on. 30, 35. You play with new things every five years. When it's about 45, you move to the comfort stage. Now there's a particular chair you like to sit in. You don't like the drafts anymore. In fact, you don't like people sitting in your favourite chair. Even when you're not there, they shouldn't be sitting there because that's my chair. You like to have the control over the television set. You want to have that little um, control thing right by your side. When you get to 60, or maybe 55, pension schemes get very important. 65 it's burial plots. Should I go for the two-plot or the (laughs) three-plot? Well, these are all toys we play with. When you're five, you absolutely believe your toys will give you happiness. And if any toys take them away, you hate them. At ten, you don't mind if your mother gives them to the poor, because now you've got the real toys. You were just mistaken when you were five. Now I know I'm grown up now. And of course, when I'm 15, I'm grown up now. When I'm 20, I'm definitely grown up now. And this goes on all the time. We keep on thinking we're grown up. Well, if you marry when you're 25 and you marry a 25-year-old toy, you mightn't want to play with it anymore when you're 40. You might want to play with a 15-year-old toy or a 40-year-old toy, but you may not want to play with a 25-year-old toy that you used to play with. Because the subtle world always changes. And if your love is in the subtle world, well, you cannot expect to love for very long. And people then say things like, he or she has changed. Or even worse, they haven't and I have. So they're the impediments to true love. So how are we going to love all? And this is very simple and very practical. The first thing is to grow to love yourself. You cannot love others until you love yourself. And when you stop loving yourself, you become lonely. Loneliness is nothing to do with other people. You can be in a room full of a thousand people and be lonely. And the reason is because you've stopped loving yourself. When you do stop loving yourself, and your life becomes lonely and empty, then you start to fill it up in desperation. So you take up a whole series of activities, sometimes including philosophy, just to fill your life. But it never satisfies, no matter how much things you do. You could have activities every morning, afternoon and evening, and a company of millions, and you'll still be lonely if you don't love yourself. When you love yourself, loneliness goes, dependency goes, and the needs go. And you're free to love everyone. The second aspect of how to love all is to love the substance and not the form. And again, this is absolutely evidenced in a family. If you take in a family where there are two children, they're not identical. So one may be better looking than another. One may be more intelligent than another, and one might be nicer, of a purer heart than the other. And yet you will love both equally. Now how can you love that which is completely different equally unless there's something the same in them which you love? And what you love in the child is their substance. And that is the same substance in each child, in each human being, in every form in this creation. And if you love the substance, because the substance is unchanging, your love will be unchanging and therefore will last forever. The substance is the same in all. And because it is the same in all, you will love all. So to love all, you must see the universal in the person not the particular. It is much, much easier to love somebody's humanity than it is to love their individual personality, their individual nationality, their particular age, their particular intelligence, their particular career or success. But it is very easy to love their humanity because it is more universal. There is a quotation from the Upanishads to bring this to an end. It says, None, O Beloved, loves the husband for the husband's sake, but it is for the sake of the self who is in the husband that the husband is loved. None, O Beloved, loves the wife for the wife's sake, but it is for the sake of the self who is in the wife that the wife is loved. In fact, we don't love husbands And we don't love wives. We love the self within the husband and the self within the wife. Love leads to unity and unity is only found in that which is the same. So what is the same in all? It is the same self, the same spirit, the same consciousness that lives in all. And this is what to love and this is how to love everyone. And that's it. So thank you. Well, what questions would you like to ask?
1: I'd just like to ask you, uh, with regard to children, You know the way a parent can love a number of children, even if one is mean-hearted or whatever. But when a child becomes to a certain age of maybe 8, 9, 10 and over, and they begin to see that people around them can be mean and horrible and unreliable and, you know, even their own friends, you know, like can not keep a secret or do something mean or selfish on them. How do you explain to a child then that you can love everybody? You know, when when they can't see maybe the bigger picture. Yes. That, you know, they really hate somebody. I've often said to, you know, one of my children, you don't have to like what the person does, but you can still love them. But I don't know whether it really... Do you know the way it sinks in?
0: No, um, absolutely. Well, at at a young age, there's only two possibilities. You can comfort the child, or you can give it a reasonable explanation. It doesn't mean that it would be able to make use of that reasonable explanation. But that doesn't mean you wouldn't give it the reasonable explanation, because in future times it may remember the reasonable explanation. And if you wish to give a reasonable explanation, where apparent injustice or hurt comes, what you would say to the child is that the appropriate response to, now you wouldn't say it in these words, I'm just saying them in these words to you, the appropriate response to ignorance is compassion. That is the natural human response to ignorance. So, for example, if there was a stranger in town and you overheard them saying that they were going to O'Connell Street and you observed that they were walking in the opposite direction, so they were walking under ignorance, the natural response in you is to go over and point out this to them and help them to find their way to O'Connell Street. Now, if somebody is being hurtful or angry or malicious. They're acting under ignorance. And the key is not to take offense, but to have compassion for their ignorance. Just as a loving mother, if your child uh, loses good health, you are naturally moved to restore good health to the child if somebody loses their reason, the natural thing is to restore their reason. Or if their heart has become hard, the natural thing is to restore love in the heart. Does that make sense? And again, just to tell you a nice story from South Africa, and this was during the apartheid regime, and so black people, or in fact everybody other than whites, had to carry pass cards, identity cards effectively and a white police officer was checking people coming out of a supermarket and because this was a very slow process, there was a very large queue forming behind the policeman and there was a lady in the school right beside the policeman and this black man wished to break out of the queue and get out of the supermarket. The police officer told him to stay where he was, and the man still moved forward in a very agitated and angry way. The policeman went, his hand went for his gun. And the lady who was in the school said to him, you never shoot a man who's lost his reason. And the police officer's hand moved away from the gun. And there was a little boy in the queue, and he says, why didn't you shoot him? (laughs) and he said because you never shoot a man who's lost his reason Mm. so because the presence of mind of this particular lady in the school of philosophy she restored reason to the policeman Mm. does that make sense? she didn't criticize the policeman she responded to the need of the moment and helped to restore his reason and that's the challenge and we find it easier to do with children we find it less easy to do with adults. We are less forgiving to adults. But ignorance is a terrible thing because it takes away a person's happiness. And as a compassionate human being, you would always wish to restore somebody's happiness.
1: Thank you. I'll just ask you one other thing. Is is love ever wasted? You know, in the sense of... I mean, you said that all it needs is one person to love and that makes you happy. But, you know, you have to make certain choices. If somebody is... Not just unresponsive, if they're maybe not worthy of loving in a sense or abusive or something like that, you know, then you just, you may walk away from it. Doesn't mean maybe you hate them, but, you know, you have to make choices, don't you, as regards who you love or...
0: Yes, you love everybody. That's the only choice. If that argument was true, the worse the ill health of somebody was, the more reason for a doctor to walk away. Does that make sense? If you take the physical analogy. The greater the ill health, the greater the need for the doctor to continue the treatment. If somebody is disturbed mentally or physically and they don't respond to love, that's not an excuse to walk away. It's just a challenge. And what you need to do is to have absolute confidence in the power of love. Nothing can withstand love. It overcomes all. And there's no such thing as wasted love because the person who gives love grows in love. If you go into a shop and you give a pound and the person doesn't give you a paper, you think that was a waste because you're bargaining. You're swapping a pound note or a pound coin for a paper. But love... The giving of love is its own reward. We don't think that's true. We want it back. I want value for my money. I want value for my love. But it's not true.
2: Thank you. Okay. I just wanted to ask about the child and who goes to the parent and says, I love you trillions. He doesn't have to protect his heart because he has all this love to give and he doesn't have to be afraid of anything. If that parent decides to go in search of another life and leave the child, the child is completely and utterly devastated and broken maybe for life. What do you do about that?
0: Well, what has been broken is the trust. And so what has to be restored is the trust. And really, what's very important is that the company that the child keeps, that those sort of people keep their word, and that will restore its trust in humanity. There may be one exception in its life, but as it gains more and more experience of people who keep their word, then it will regain its trust. When it's an adult, if it's blessed enough to have a a wise enough mother or father, then it can be explained as an error and not as something personal. It is not an expression of hatred for the child, but an error of judgement. That's what it is.
2: It hasn't saved him though, loving himself as, you know, children all love themselves because they don't know any better until they get older. Or yes. they don't know any different until they get older. It hasn't protected him.
0: Is it an adult now? Yes. All right. Well, if the child can come to know true love or can come to know true reason, it will dissolve the hurt or the effect of the past event. Reason dissolves everything. So, and again, I told this story before, but I'll just tell it once more. When I was a young man, I went out with a young lady who was killed in a car crash. And at the time, this lady was the love of my life, so it hurt me terribly. And I contemplated all the normal things like suicide, and I certainly hated God, and I couldn't find any reason for this anguish at all. So I searched my past, and I couldn't find a bad deed that was worthy of this. And this went on for a long time. And basically, the running sound in my mind was, I do not wish to live. So this went on for about three or four months. And one morning... I'm not at university when I should be. I'm simply rocking in a rocking chair with this sound that I wish to die. And I'd had some breakfast that morning. But anyway, the first thing was, I looked down and I noticed my chest expanding in and out with the breath. And I asked myself, if I wish to die, why am I breathing so easily? And then the head just turned to the left for some reason and I saw on the kitchen table an empty bowl from which I'd been eating and there was three cereals. And in the empty bowl were the remains of the cereal that I had eaten. And it was my favourite cereal of the three. And I asked the question, if I hate life so much, why did I pick my favourite cereal? And it became obvious to me that I loved to live. And that moment, the grief dissolved and never came back. So that's reason dissolving. The other thing is that love can dissolve. And how you dissolve hurt is with forgiveness. And an adult can understand this better anyway. That we often think he or she doesn't deserve forgiving. Therefore, I won't forgive them. But if you don't forgive, you carry the burden. So, if you forgive, there are two beneficiaries. The one who did the wrongdoing and the one who's been hurt. So the key is forgiveness. You have to forgive. If you want to go free of a past event which is hurtful, you have to forgive. It takes tremendous strength to do that, but it is the way to freedom. And what one needs is to have confidence that there is a law in this creation that good acts bear good results and bad acts bear bad results. And if somebody has committed a bad act, there is a a future bad fruit to be paid for. So one is sorry for their future. Does Does that make sense?
2: Yes. Can one as an adult learn to love oneself? Absolutely. By being taught or...
0: No. There was a lady in a school called Sheila Rosenberg, absolutely remarkable woman, and she made this comment. She said, it's unfortunate to be ugly at 16. It's unforgivable at 60. That when you're 60, you should not see yourself as ugly. Now, if you identify with the body, you may or may not be blessed with the so-called classical shape. You may not have the mind of Einstein, so there's nothing you can do about those, in a way, or up to a certain point. But there's another aspect to your being. There is the spirit in man, and that is pure, perfect, and complete. And the real key is to find your essence. And when you find it, Then you will love this body, irrespective of its shape. You will love the mind and you will love the heart. And you love it in everybody. But you need to find that first. That's what you would encourage somebody to do. And how can you find the spirit? Well, there are two ways of finding the spirit. One is the heart has to be purified to a certain amount. And the other thing is the mind has to become still. It has to stop moving all the time. Stop being agitated. And when it does become still, you suddenly become aware of that which is always in presence. I don't know if you've ever sometimes looked across a sky and you see a bird flying through the sky. And sometimes you become aware it's actually flying in stillness. Do you recognize that? Mm -hmm. You actually know it's moving in stillness. Well, these sounds are taking place in silence. When you look at the page of a book, or let's just take this page here, so if you take that page, it's about 95% white. The writing takes up a very small proportion of the whole page, but it's only the bit we see. We miss the underlying substratum, the whiteness. When there's activity, we miss the stillness. When there's sound, we miss the silence. So if the heart can become a bit pure, like absence of greed and malice and these sorts of things, and if the mind can become a bit stiller, you become aware of this underlying substratum, which is pure, perfect, and complete. So that's what I would recommend to that young man or woman. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else?
3: Through your lecture, you painted a very idealistic picture of love. And, you know, it seems almost impossible to reach. And just as I look out, like, in the audience here this evening, maybe 95% female, I wondered where all the males were. Because it seems a very hard task to do. And, you know, most of us are probably in relationships. And yet, this 95% as I said, female. Yes. So I'm just wondering, can it, is it possible sort of for, <laughs> for women to do it on their own? Or is it, you know, can you reach these high goals without sort of your partner in life?
0: Yes, you can, but it's obviously made much easier if the partner joins you. It's like if you have a car and it breaks down, it's much more difficult to push it yourself. If there's two people there, normally, well, you know, if it's, Not a serious mechanical fault, it is possible to to push start it. So, yes, it is an advantage, but anybody can reach the goal on their own. Man, and I mean the human being, is complete. But it would be made easier if people could do this as a unit. There is a tendency in the male to be lazy. I can see you recognize that tendency. (laughs) And they're slow to ignite. right? Whereas the lady, with this very natural connection with the emotional center, is much quicker to respond. So there are certain things where the lady has to move first. She's just naturally quicker. And one of them is in terms of love. In the philosophy school we have these residential weekends and people come to a place called Townley Hall to study philosophy for a weekend. And if the topic is about love and there's some statement with which the students work with, the ladies go off working immediately. The men want to look up dictionaries to, <laughs> to, get, to get explanations for the words. And they dissect it and they analyse and they separate it. If you have a, a general meeting on a Saturday, the ladies all tell you what they've discovered about, let's say, true love. The men are still arguing about what it means. And on, on Sunday, the men are beginning to just catch up a little bit again. So, I, in some areas, the response of the lady is much, much quicker. And therefore, she should respond more quickly. But the men do catch up after a while. You just have to be forgiving to them, that's all. (laughs) But it can be done on your own. Never doubt the efficacy of love. If I said to you, what is the response when somebody shows you love? Do you not respond lovingly as well? So, don't worry about being the first one. Just perfect your love and you will find that the other will respond. Somebody has to move first. It might as well be the quicker of the two.
4: <laughs>
0: yes.
2: I'm just wondering, in view of the fact that you think love is the only emotion, really, in the end of the day, and that women are quicker to come to love, would you not think that the world would be a better place if more women were in authority in the world? Or does that follow?
0: No, it doesn't necessarily follow. There's one philosophical description. It describes the difference between men and women, and it says it like this. It says, men are the powerful, and women are the power of the powerful. So if a woman pulls the plug out, you get this weak, emaciated, inefficient, incompetent creature. Whereas if woman lends her support, then it makes it much easier for the man to be competent in all these things. It's not essential to be in authority. It's a team effort. Humanity was divided between man and woman, not to separate them. Just like the the hand was divided into five fingers, not so that they would argue with each other, but so that it could do complex tasks, so that the fingers could work together to do fine things, which you could not do if there were no fingers, if it was just a solid hand. So the real key is not whether women are in authority or men in an authority, but are they working as a unit? That's the key. Well, the analogy that I often use is if you take Rallycross, if I asked you to name, or asked this audience, to name a world-famous Rallycross driver, some people in the audience would be able to name them. But if I asked you to name the map reader, I think people would have extreme difficulty coming up with any map reader and the reason is the attention goes to the driver and not to the map reader but if you were to ask people who do do rally cross they would say to you the map reader is no less important than the driver one gets to do the steering the other one gets to feed the information to the person who steers All that's important is that the best one at steering does the steering and the best one at feeding the information does the feeding of the information.
2: Yeah, I'm just, I suppose, thinking of, I mean, you feel therefore in order for someone to be a good leader they need to have a partner of the opposite sex, you know, ideally. It's extremely helpful. I'm just thinking at the point of the human being complete. Would you not feel there are kind of male and female maybe characteristics in each of us It's just a question of balance and a question of society and nurturing, you know, all of that. So, yeah, I'm just teasing it out.
0: The male and the female characteristics are in both sexes. But it takes greatness to do it on your own. Because if you take the ordinary male-female situation, the male and female complement each other. They have complementary talents so that the two achieve a perfect unity. Now, if you want to achieve a perfect unity on your own, then you need to be great. Otherwise, a partner is of immense help to you.
2: So you would feel people like, say, Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela, who were great on their own, Absolutely. you know, largely were great. And, Absolutely. Yeah, they had great there are the exceptions.
0: Well, i just say the way I would look at it. If I look at a Mother Teresa or a Nelson Mandela or a Gandhi or other people that I would consider to be great. I don't see a great male or a great female. I see a great human being. They've gone beyond gender to expressing universal humanity. That's quite a challenge, to go beyond a way of thinking or responding which is linked to your gender.
2: Well, I agree with you. I mean, I didn't mean to be antagonistic at all in the question. I mean, I just feel with the world being in such a state of aggression that I sometimes think more of a balance with female input would be more important. It's just. uh, Well, I think uh,
0: the way I would look on it is that the world is in great need of more love and it's in great need of more reason. And whoever supplies it will do a great service to, to the world.
2: Thank you.
0: Okay. Yes, anybody else?
3: If I understood uh, correctly, you mentioned loneliness being um, an absence of love for self. And I just wondered if you could explain that a little bit more, please.
0: Yes, well, I don't know whether you've ever had this experience yourself, but you can be in a room with a 100 people and feel lonely. So how do you explain that? And they could all be fantastic people. They could be Mother Teresa, Gandhi and the lot. (laughs) And they're in the room and yet you feel lonely. Now, this is only the way we would express it. That loneliness is a sense of emptiness. That's what loneliness is. It's an inner emptiness. Now, we think that outside people, or other people, will fill my emptiness. But you can fill it yourself. You can be happy in yourself. Once you are happy in yourself, you enjoy your own company. You don't need company. You will avail of company, but you don't need it. When you're in company, you'll enjoy it. When you're not in company, you will enjoy your
3: own. But you might be in your own company a lot and miss companionship and therefore feel lonely, but you might still be comfortable with yourself when you are on your own.
0: Once you are satisfied in yourself, you don't need another Once you are 100% satisfied with this, then there is no need or dependency on another. A lot of our relationships are based on need. A much higher form of relationship is if the relationship is based on fulfilling the need of another, i.e. making the other happy rather than being in the relationship so that they can make you happy which is why most of us are in relationships, but the real key to relationship is to be happy in yourself and then to share that happiness with others so that they may be happy. I don't know if that helps. Yeah. But watch for that. If there is loneliness or you know people who are lonely, they either do two things. They withdraw into themselves or else they're in a gymnasium five nights a week and they're taking up every fad known to the human being. Trying to fill that emptiness from outside. The real key is fill it from within. I.e. a love for yourself. Or love of yourself. So. Yes, anybody else?
2: just in terms of what you were saying about having your list by which you evaluate people if you're one of these people that evaluated people in terms of these criteria you know in relationships and if you want to drop that list now uh, from what you were saying earlier on how do you evaluate anyone then if you love everyone the same how do you break it down to one particular person
0: this only applies to the ignorant which is all of us <laughs> well, What you do is you make it easy on yourself. So you have a particular nature and I have a particular nature and everybody has a particular nature. And some natures are naturally harmonious and some of them are not. So you take within the animal kingdom, if you put a dog and a cat, you know, an adult dog and an adult cat in the same vicinity, one chases the other, not out of love, (laughs) with a desire of extinction of the other. That's their nature. You will find, if you're of a particular nature, there will be people whom you find it very easy to love, and there will be others that it is a great challenge. So make it easy on yourself. Pick those that you find it easier. Then you can save all that energy for other work. So that's the way you do it. But let me say this, for the wise man or somebody like Jesus or something like that, this doesn't apply at all. doesn't apply at all. There's no preference. This is what the Pharisees found very difficult to understand, that he was hanging around with publicans and tax collectors and ordinary people and not the good people like the Pharisees, those who knew the scriptures. It's evidenced again and again and again in the Bible. You take the story of the adulteress, where the lady was caught in the act of adultery. And under Judaic law in those times, you were stoned to death. So that was the justice of the people in those times. And as you know, the lady was brought before Jesus. And they asked, shall we stone her? He said, let those who are without sin cast the first stone. And they all walked away, the oldest first, because they had more sins. (laughs) So so they walked away until there was nobody left. And then he asked, had anybody condemned thee? And she said, no, Lord. And he said, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And it's the most incredible demonstration unconditional love because he didn't condemn her and yet he gave her a direction he wasn't saying you're innocent because he said go and sin no more so she was guilty but he said neither do I go and sin no more so for people and I this is speculation on my part but I think it's evidenced by the words for people like Jesus They didn't see adulteresses or publicans or prostitutes. They saw the self everywhere. But for the likes of you and I, we should make it easy on ourselves. And you will find it's very good to look at your own nature and to know your own nature, because what you should seek for yourself is that which complements your own nature. And I just say this is in business terms now, but I used to work as an accountant. And despite the rigorous training of accounting, there is very little discipline here when it comes to accounting. So I don't like writing up books, and I certainly don't like keeping my own books. And in order to ensure an absence of chaos, for my own accountancy practice, I employed this bookkeeper lady who would spend a night searching for a missing penny. She is so disciplined. Now, the business is no longer there, but she was my complement. It was a perfect match for the business enterprise because her talents and skills and a combination of mine made it a good unit. A good hole with which business could be done and money could be made. That's the key. So it's very important to know your own nature. And we're not too good at that, at self-observation. So. Yes. Anybody else?
4: I'm just curious as to the idea of love not being a special love, as to be straight across the board for everybody. But a couple of times in your talk, you, as an an analogy, you mentioned uh, the bond between, let's say, a mother and child. I would contend that the love between a mother and child is a special kind of love, purely on the basis of the human condition and the nurturing, the amount of emotional investment and time into the development and care of a child and I would see that as
0: an exception to the rule. Right, okay well that's a very good question. If you are mother you will have a special bond with children that are born from you. That's the way it is. Say you have a a number of ladies in a room and one lady's child falls over and starts to cry that mother will move very quickly to relieve the pain or the misery in the child. That's absolutely natural. But that is the bond between two roles. It's between mother, which is a role, and a child. There's no such person as a mother. It's not a person. It's a role. You know, if that woman is out in a bar that night swallowing Budweiser she's a drinker not a mother there's no mother in the bar there's just a drinker of Budweiser and what you'll find is during the day we pick up and put down numerous roles so one moment the role is a driver and then I hate pedestrians and I love my fellow drivers and then five minutes later I'm a pedestrian and I hate drivers, and I love all my fellow pedestrians. No matter what I am, I hate all bicyclists all the time. <laughs> so you pick up and put down hundreds of roads every day, and every one of those roles has a special affection for that which gives it existence. So the child gives the mother existence the husband gives wife existence. If you kill the husband, you've also killed the wife. You've got a widow now. Does that make sense? You can't have a wife without a husband. So there are these special bonds between the roles, but this is not love. Love is from self to self. From essence to essence. Not from role to role. And what is important for the human being, you don't deny motherhood or fatherhood or any of these things at all, but it's necessary to go beyond it. There's a much bigger picture where there's true love. Because with that bond, unfortunately, comes grief or the potentiality of grief. So that if the child lives, you're happy, And if it dies, you grieve. That's what happens to a mother. But a human being can transcend all of that. Go beyond all of that. And never grieve. And yet be a magnificent mother. Fully satisfy the child's needs. But have no bondage. That's the possibility.
3: I'd like to ask the question that what is the difference between to love somebody and to be in love? Do you need to be in love first before you can actually love somebody? Essentially, what is the difference between the two?
0: Yes, I've heard people using these phrases before. Now, personally, I don't really understand what differentiation they have in their minds. If you love somebody, you are in love. When you use the the phrases, do you mean two different things?
3: Yes, I think in love means to fall in love, first of all. You need to do that before you can ultimately love somebody. I feel there, are, there is a difference between the two. All right, well, let's say
0: I'm in love. I've, I've now fallen, I've descended, and I'm in love. <laughs> and Are you saying there would be some time gap before I could then say I love someone?
3: I'm saying I believe it's a prere- prerequisite to love somebody, that you must have that feeling beforehand. Really? or I'm kind of maybe I'm asking that question Do yes
0: you? well now maybe there is a difference I can never pick up the difference in my mind when people use these phrases and I cannot perceive a difference between being in love and loving someone I don't see them as sequential or in fact different but I may not be hearing what people are actually saying when they say in well, love
3: sometimes people say when they're in love they're on Cloud 9 and the yes. fantastic. Oh, universe. that sort of thing. Yes, oh, yeah. yes. Emotional and they really feel the dis- <laughs> 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 Well, it's like they really feel this is the person for them yes. and they have that feeling, and ultimately that, bec- that stops after a while and they get on exactly. with it. And exactly. They, and they li- but I'm just wondering. All right,
0: I understand now. It's just that I'm so cold hearted, I didn't understand <laughs> in the beginning. All right. That feeling of being in love is not love, it's just a feeling. Mr. McLaren, the man who founded the school, used to call it emotional indigestion. That's why I used the phrase. He actually said that love is cool. Passion, or that sort of intensity, it's an excitement. That's all it is. And it's like a fire. If you stoke up a fire, all that happens is it burns out more quickly. And that sort of in love experience that you speak about does die out. But it, you wouldn't call it love. At least, sorry, I wouldn't call it love. I once asked the most senior group in Dublin of men, there's a men's group and the, you know, they're in the school about 30 years now this days, and there's about 12 of them in the group. So I asked them, say we take a week or two before they married their wives. In fact, 11 out of the 12 are married. And I said, do you remember that feeling that you had for your wife? And so they all cast their minds back to 25 or 30 years and they remembered the feeling. And I said, was it that feeling which led you to marry your wife? And they said, yes. I said, is there any trace of that feeling today? They said, no. (laughs) They didn't have to answer this because I would know a lot of the wives as well. These are very good marriages. I think you would happily say there is love between both parties. What happens is that this, in love, this emotional indigestion, is what gets a lot of us down the aisle. But it's nothing to do with love. And for some people, what actually happens is that that fire dies out and is not replaced by love. And so the marriage dies out. Does that make sense? It's best just to love. You don't need that emotional indigestion. It doesn't actually add anything. One thing about love is that it generates energy. When you're full of love, you'll find you're full of energy. That in love thing exhausts you. That's what it does. It (laughs) it burns up energy. It actually burns up the energy. That's why it dies out. (laughs) Yes. So is Formula One. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. but I think we're all glad when the 63rd lap comes up and somebody's won the race. That really just is at the level of feelings. And in a way it has a tragic aspect to it because it is so intense and so all-consuming that one takes it to be love. But if you're not fortunate enough for the true love to arise, you're left with nothing. You've got nothing then. The fire has burnt out. Whereas the other one, last forever there are two things which every human being has which they cannot use up you you fairy stories and there's a goose that lays golden eggs and no matter how many eggs it is, there's always more golden eggs or there's a magic something or or other and whatever you take out of it there's more in the jar or something like that well in fact you have two magic jars in every human being one of them is love and the other is wisdom and if you give away your love You grow in love. Let's say you had a 100 pounds and you give me 10 pounds. Well, the laws of mathematics demand that you only have 90 pounds left. There's no way around that. However, say you gave me love or somebody love, you will actually end up with more love. The more you give it, the more you'll have. And it's exactly the same with wisdom. The more wisdom you give away to others, the more you will grow in wisdom. And what is said philosophically about this, that love and wisdom are the two godly or divine aspects in man. They're both limitless. That's why he can love limitlessly or have limitless wisdom. But the other, I'm afraid, is, as you say, good fun and all that sort of stuff, but has nothing to do with love. And sometimes you find people querying whether they love somebody, because this is absent. You know, they don't find this sort of emotional rush. whatever <laughs> The buzz is not there. And they think, I've stopped loving the person. That's not true. It's not true at all. It's nothing to do with it. True love is a very quiet thing. Very, very quiet. When you truly love someone, silence is just beautiful. To be in the company of someone you love, the silence is as glorious as the conversation. When there is that emotional indigestion, you can't shut up. so I would really encourage people not to look for that it is so misleading it's such a pity there's an awful lot more love there in our lives than we acknowledge but we won't call it love because it doesn't have that hundred piece orchestra playing in the background which is a pity does that answer it? maybe one last question A happy, loving question. (laughs) Do the majority of couples not grow from liking to loving, as opposed to loving to start with? That's how they may experience it, and that's maybe how they remember it, but it's not what actually happens. So they may describe it like that. They may describe, well, I I liked her at the start or I even didn't like her at the start and then after a while I did like her a bit and then a lot and then I fell in love. But the love is always there. It's like, say, if you can imagine a light bulb and it's got seven veils over it. So there's a certain amount of light shining from the light bulb, but because of these seven veils, only a a certain amount of it comes through the seven veils. And you remove one of the veils. And you say, ah, the light is getting brighter. But of course it's not. If you looked in under the, the veils, you'd see the light is unchanging. And as you remove each veil, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And when the seven veils are gone, it is shining with its full intensity. What often happens for us in relationships is that which covers the love is uncovered or discovered as the relationship matures. But the love was always there. Always there. If there are no covers, the love is instantaneous. You can look across a room and be in love. You don't have to wait prerequisite times or date, X number of dates or have X number of evening meals or whatever.
4: Is that not a general love for
0: everybody? There is only general love. There is nothing special about love. The greatest examples of love are always general love. You take the love of Christ for humanity. He didn't prefer the so-called good people or the religious people to the sinners and the poor. It was true love without any conditions. We have this desire for a special love, because that special love produces this intensity. But limitless love, which doesn't overcome your being, is the best love. It has a a warmth to it that never goes, rather than an intensity which burns itself out. You see, what often happens is a man will say, I really love my children and forgetting whatever that does to those particular children. What it means is that he treats all other children as less than his own. Now that's actually a crime. The law won't allow you, the ordinary law of this land will not allow you to treat one human being as less than another. In law, everybody's entitled to full justice, to freedom under the law and all these things. The law won't recognize it. All the religions won't recognize it. They say all men are equal. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Whatever religion you wish to take, it says all are equal. And it actually is an injustice to prefer one to another. You would scream injustice if this is the way you were treated. Let's say you've got, a, we make it an ingrown toenail or something, tragic like that, and you find yourself in the uh, casualty department, and a rich man has, sorry, richer than your good self. (laughs) I shouldn't be presumptuous. A man richer than yourself comes in with an ingrown toenail, and again, you'll forgive me, a very good-looking young lady also comes in with an ingrown toenail, and a younger person than yourself comes in with an ingrown toenail. And the surgeon says, well, I want to treat the rich, the young, and whatever, the exceptionally good-looking, first. You would say, that's insane. I am equal, I have a human body as well, I was here first, I wish to be treated first, which is, would be equality. So we wish to be treated as equal, yet we don't treat anybody else as equal. And when you can enjoy that general love, you'll find you enjoy everything without limit. And I've given this analogy before, but if I said to you, would you like to have more love in your lives? Anybody overdosing on love would like to cut back on it a bit. Are we all sort of interested in at least a little bit more love in our lives? I think normally all the hands go up and people say, I'd like more love in my life. So we make a, a man comes to me, and uh, we make him a Kerry man, and he says that he only enjoys so much love in his life, and he'd like to enjoy more. And he comes to me for advice. And I ask him, well, when do you find that there is this love? And he says, well, when I'm in Kerry, I find that there's love in my heart. And when I'm with Kerry people, I'm so natural with them that love arises. And when the Kerry team wins, there's a bit of this excited love and all of that sort of stuff, right? And he says, I'd love to love more. So I say to him, all right, well, i tell you what I want you to do. I want you to become a monster man. So off you go. So he becomes a monster man. And he rings me after week, he says, fantastic. There are six counties, I can wander around six counties, I feel at home, I love everybody in the six counties, I enjoy various teams winning, I can even enjoy Cork beating Kerry now. And then he says, however, I'd like there could be more love in my life. I say, why didn't you become an Irishman? So now he does that, and he finds, there's either four million or five and a half million people that he loves in 26 counties or 32 counties, and... He feels at home no matter where he goes on the island. And then he says to me, well, I'd like to love more. And I say, why don't you become a European? So he begins to enjoy the Lions tour now, and if France wins the World Cup, he feels good because they're a European team. And there's about 300 million people that he feels at home with, and he loves them. Of course, he wants more, so I tell him to become a man. Just become a man, which is what he was at the very beginning. I could have given it a quick for him, but it, being from Kerry, we had to take it step by step. <laughs> it's like this. If you think you're Irish, it will, in the ordinary run of events, produce particular relationships with the French, with the English and the Americans. If you think you're white, it will produce relationships with Indians, Chinese, black and Occidentals. The whole idea is to drop this limited identity and then you won't have a special love. To stop thinking that you're male or female or that you're Irish or that you're intelligent or stupid or that you're young or old. If you could just drop that identity you'd find there's love there for everything and everybody without exception. And you'd never, ever, ever go back to that special love again. So, that's the possibility. Thank you, and good night.